Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And a while back, I heard the story of a 90-year-old married couple. They've been married, obviously, quite a long time. And I've never been 90 years old, but so I hear the memories, the first thing to go, you know. And so this couple's starting to notice, hey, we're, we're just forgetting stuff. This steel trap doesn't work quite like it used to. And they talk to their doctor about it. And the doctor says, well, if you're having trouble remembering things, maybe you should just start writing stuff down, help you keep track of it all. So they say, okay, you know, and one day the couple's sitting on the couch in the living room just watching TV together, and the husband gets up. He says, honey, I'm going to the kitchen. Can I get you anything while I'm there? And she says, well, you know, a bowl of ice cream sounds nice. And he says, okay, starts to head to the kitchen, and she says, hey, do you need to write that down? He says, no, no, I've, I've got it. She says, okay, well, uh, could, could you add strawberries to that? He says, okay, no problem. She says, are you are you sure you don't need to write that down? He says, honey, I've, I've got it, trust me. And, and she says, okay, well, you know, whipped cream sounds really nice on, on that too. And, and, and he says, all right, sure, sure. She says, are you sure that you don't need to write that down? He says, listen, honey, I told you, I've got it. And so he goes off to the kitchen and he's there a little bit and the, the clock starts to tick and she's looking at the clock. He's in the kitchen for 20 minutes. And finally, he comes back into the living room carrying a plate of bacon and eggs. <laughs> and, and the wife just looks at him and she says, where's the toast? <laughs> it's a dumb joke. Thanks for laughing. You make me feel good early on a Sunday morning. Hey, uh, one of the reasons that I love that we make a habit of coming together every Sunday morning to celebrate the life of Jesus together is that I have the worst memory of anybody that I know. In fact, my kids, this is no lie, have recently given me a nickname. In the Proctor house, they often refer to me now as the forget monster. Judah just called me that for some reason, and it's stuck. I have to write everything down if I'm going to remember it because it comes in one ear and goes out the other. Otherwise, I forget everything. And as a forgetful guy, it's really important in my life for me to have good habits and good routines every day that help me remember what it is that I'm supposed to do. Uh, there's a psychologist by the name of Timothy Wilson who's done a study on habits and routines and memory, and he says that actually he estimates that only 5% of what we do on any given day is actually a deliberate, conscious choice. He says 95% percent of the things we do every day are just habit. It's just routine. And every family has their routines, don't we? We've all kind of got our habits. Let me ask you about one routine in particular. What is your dinnertime routine? Uh, you can look up the stats about how important it is for a family to have a dinnertime routine where you're sharing at least one meal a week together around the table. Let me tell you a little bit of what our dinnertime routine looks like. Typically, it means Luke rushing home from work a few minutes late, even though I've got four or five unanswered emails that I was supposed to get to and didn't get to. And so my mind is cluttered, but I come stumbling in the door where I'm greeted by six fists from three little boys sharing the truest expression of their love which is attacking me with all of their force. And so I jump right into the fray of punches and somewhere in there, Rebecca gives me a kiss and I jump in to try to help her out because she's already said, not yet. 
approximately 467 times when the boys are begging her for snacks and she's just trying to hold them off until dinner time. You know, every family has their routines and so we jump in and we're scrambling around and somebody's naked and somebody's crying and somebody's bleeding and somebody just bit somebody else, but we finally manage to get the food on the table. And then all of a sudden, right when we get the food on the table and we're ready to eat, two of the three boys, without fail, always decide that they all of a sudden have something very urgent that they need to go do right then that's far more important to eating. And so then they decide to scatter right when we want them to gather. So we go chase them down and I drag one kid out from behind the couch and I holler a bunch of threats up the stairs at the other kid until they finally come down to the table and I pry the toy Tyrannosaurus Rex out of the arms of the one kid. And just when we get ready to go, then one brother pokes the other brother who spills his drink. And so Rebecca goes and finds a towel while the boys decide that they're going to shuffle seats around and play musical chairs and jockey for position about deciding who gets the best seat. And Rebecca comes and she wipes up the drink, and that just then, she lights a match. And all of a sudden, the chaos, most nights, <laughs> quiets down a little bit. And in that moment, she, she lights a candle right in the middle of the table every evening, and we say one sentence together. We say, Christ is the light of the world. And then somebody prays, and I'm always amazed, almost every night, that it seems like For the first time all day, we have a moment to breathe, and everything's quiet, and I'm reminded, oh yes, Jesus is here with us, and oh yes, he is the light of the world, because sometimes I forget. So what's your dinnertime routine? You know, Jesus, he's a good father, and so he, he knows that we as his children, we have a tendency to forget, and so he actually gave us, as his family, a mealtime routine together. We're going to read it this morning from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. I'll read the words in white, and I'd ask you to join me in reading out loud the words in yellow. Mark writes this. He says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb... Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man." It would be better for him if he'd not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here's the scene. Uh, We've seen so far as we've walked through Mark's gospel account that chapters 1 through 8, we said the first half of Mark's gospel, the whole point is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the one true king. And now over the last few weeks, as we've been walking through the second half of Mark's gospel, chapters 9 through 16, we've seen that the whole point of the second half is that the Christ is headed for a cross. And we are indeed very close to the cross today. This is the last night of Jesus' life. It's Thursday night, and he and his disciples are preparing for the Passover festival. Now, you might remember that the Passover was the biggest week of the Jewish year. It's kind of like Thanksgiving and the 4th of July all rolled into one. Hundreds of thousands of people every year would make the trip to Jerusalem where they would celebrate how God had delivered them from being slaves in Egypt. And the whole celebration culminated with one special meal. And it was a meal steeped in routine that had just become habits to reinforce the people's collective memory. And each year, every year, as the family would gather around the table and eat their meal, it was the job of one of the youngest grandchildren to ask their grandfather and to say, Papa, what does all of this mean? And every year at the Passover meal, the grandfather would tell them the same old story. He'd say, well, we, we eat this meal to remember how so long ago our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, and for 400 years they cried out to God. And God heard their cries, and he sent them Moses as a deliverer. And through Moses, God sent plagues on Egypt, but still Pharaoh, he would not let the people go until finally God decided it would take something devastating. And so God told his people, each of them, to take a lamb and to slaughter that lamb and to paint the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And so we all did. And we ate a meal together preparing for what God might do, preparing to be set free. And God came and every house that was covered by the blood of a lamb was passed over. But in every home that was not covered by the blood of a lamb, the firstborn son died. And so Pharaoh finally then agreed to let the people go. He says, you see, that lamb died so that we could live. And every year the grandfather would tell the same old story behind that meal. It's a sobering story. And as these families would gather in Jerusalem year after year to celebrate the Passover feast, imagine what those Jewish children would have seen Because one Jewish historian tells us that around the Passover time each year, an estimated 200,000 animals were sacrificed at the temple for the sins of the people. Can you imagine a Jewish child seeing all of that? Imagine that you're a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, and all year long you raise this pet little lamb, and you feed it, and you care for it, and and you name it, and you play with it, but then comes the time 
for Passover. And that lamb is taken away from you and given to a priest where it has its throat slit and its blood drained and its body burned. Every Jewish child knew just how serious sin was. They knew that forgiveness for sin was not a laughing matter. They knew that it was not cheap. They knew that sin was a bloody affair and that it takes blood to wash your sin away. They knew the truth of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And then came this Passover meal every year where they would eat this lamb. And this was no ordinary meal. Every element of this meal was symbolic and had great meaning. And so each year, the grandfather would remind the whole family. He'd say, remember, now, our ancestors, when they ate, that night when God passed over them, they ate with their shoes on. And they ate in a hurry because they had to be ready to go as soon as they got the word. And everything at the table meant something. The grandfather would say that, that salt water there reminds us of the tears of our slavery. And those bitter herbs on the table remind us of the bitterness of our bondage. And that fruit paste that is all mixed together reminds us how we had to mix the mortar for bricks for the Egyptians. And this flat bread without yeast reminds us of how God sent bread every day to care for our people while we were in the desert. Not too much bread, not too little, just the right amount. And of course, this lamb, this lamb reminds us of the blood that spared our lives. And to drink every year at the Passover feast, they would have four cups of wine at the table. And each cup of wine was meant to remind the people of a promise that God had given them through Moses. And this meal, with all its symbolism and all the stories, this was the meal that Jesus ate with his friends on the last night of his life. This is the story that these good little Jewish boys had grown up hearing every single year. This is the dinnertime routine that was burned into their memory. And so as Jesus started into this Passover meal and telling this Passover story with his disciples on the last night of his life, it all would have been very familiar to them, just like Christmas is familiar to you. And Jesus would have started with the first cup and the first promise. And each promise for each cup was drawn from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, where God promised this through Moses to the people. God would say, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. There's promise number one. Promise number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Promise number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then promise number four, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And you know, in the difficulty of life as a Jew who's being oppressed by the Roman Empire, I'm sure it was easy to forget those promises. And so every year at this dinnertime routine, it was to remind them of what God had promised to do for them. Four cups, four promises. And Jesus would have started on that last night of his life with cup number one and promise number one. Promise number one, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
And I wonder if, as Jesus gave this promise to his disciples, I wonder if he looked out and he saw them burdened under a yoke. It had been a long week, an exhausting week full of tension and uncertainty and conflict. I'm sure he saw that his disciples were tired. And I want you to know that Jesus sees you too this morning. Jesus sees the expectations that are on you. He sees the weariness that you carry. He sees the burden that is on your back. He sees the things that you have placed on yourself, the things that others have placed on you. He sees when you are crushed by the weight of your failures. He sees when you are weighed down by the chains of sin. Jesus sees the yoke that you carry today. He sees the tangled web of broken relationships and the unfulfilled longings and the crushed hopes and the uncertainty and the distraction and the busyness that shackles you and his promises, the same to you as it was to them. He says, I will bring you out from under that yoke of slavery. In fact, Jesus said very specifically, Something about a yoke, you might remember that if you carry a yoke today, if you are weary and burdened and if you feel heavy laden, you might remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cup number one, the promises that Jesus wants to take away and bring you out from under a yoke of slavery and he wants to give you his yoke instead. Now make no mistake, it is still a yoke. He still has work for you to do and a mission for you to accomplish. But Jesus' yoke on your shoulders is not a yoke of slavery, it's a yoke of freedom. It's an easy yoke because Jesus is the one who's yoked up alongside you. That's the good news for you this morning. I hope you know the promise of cup number one, that Jesus wants to bring you out from under a yoke of slavery. And then at that meal, just like they would have done every single year, Jesus, leading the meal with his disciples, would have moved to the second cup. And from Exodus chapter 6, the promise of cup number 2 is that I will free you from being slaves to them. I will free you. I will liberate you. And so the Jews every year, as they would drink this cup of wine, it would be a reminder, we are tasting our freedom. We are tasting our liberation. But then, just then, instead of just saying the same old words, in this moment, Jesus did something absolutely crazy. We read it earlier, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. It says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Whoa, 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 Jesus. <laughs> you took a detour from the script. That's not how this meal is supposed to go. It's a sudden detour from centuries of tradition. They knew the lines. This was not in the lines. And yet, as his disciples took this bread that Jesus said was his body, Jesus is saying to them, this is the same thing. As you drink cup number two, as you eat this bread, taste your freedom. And this is what we do every week at communion. We taste our freedom together. Now, you might be familiar with the term sacraments. 
Um, sacrament is something that God has given the church that is just a fancy word for a physical sign that conveys a deep spiritual truth. And we have two specific sacraments that God has given the church, communion and baptism. That means that when you see somebody get baptized, we're having some baptisms later on today, that baptistry is not just a plastic tub with some tap water in it, right? And that means that communion every week is not just a cracker and a shot of Welch's grape juice for some kind of mid-service snack in case you're hungry. We know this, that these sacraments, these are thin places where heaven and earth get a little bit closer, where yes, God is always with us, of course, but in baptism and in communion, the presence of God is uniquely tangible. And, and God had given physical signs to the Jews also. They got circumcised. That was their physical sign to convey that they were entered into God's family. And then they had a Passover meal together as a dinner to remind themselves of the story of their deliverance. That kind of parallels the two sacraments that we enter into also. Baptism is our entrance into the family. And communion is our family meal where we remind ourselves of our deliverance. And both of them are external acts that communicate deep spiritual reality. Realities. That yes, baptism is just going down into some tap water, but it's also in that moment that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and forgiven of your sins and indwelt by God's Holy Spirit and sealed for all of eternity. It's a unique moment when God's Holy Spirit comes to live in you. And in the same way, communion is just a little thing. Yeah, it's a little piece of bread and it's a little dab of grape juice. But there's something deeply spiritual that happens in this moment, that in communion we are bonded together as the body of Christ, and we are bonded together with Christ himself. Uh, Paul describes what happens in communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the how we participate with his presence. Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Jesus said, this is my body. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. So in this moment that we receive communion, we're bonded together with one another and bonded together with him. I understand that communion is a bit mystical. It's hard to understand what exactly happens in this moment. Perhaps it would be best for us to think of communion um, directionally, if that's okay for a minute. Uh, first of all, in communion, we look outwards at the world. That we proclaim every single week that we are people whose lives are based on gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. This is our witness to the world. But we don't just look outwards. This meal also is a time for us to look side to side at one another. That in this room, we've got a lot of different stories, a lot of different preferences, personalities, and experiences. And yet what we just read says the one thing that binds us together is this common story, that we're saved and washed by the blood of Jesus. Communion is also a time for us to look upward at God and, and to tell him thank you. It's a time for us to look inward at ourselves, to examine ourselves for sin, to repent of our sin, to prepare our hearts again to receive what Jesus has done for us. It's also a time for us to look backward, to remember the cost that Jesus paid to forgive us so that we could be liberated from sin and death. This mealtime is so that no matter what happens, we will never forget that we have been set free. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of space the service out a little bit together today. You'll notice that there's some people who've gathered around the edges of the room. We have seven communion stations around the room right now. Three up here. There's two in the back here on the lower level. There's also two communion stations outside the balcony up there at the corners. And so the praise team is up here and they're going to play two songs. The first song is just a song to prepare your heart, to meditate on preparing to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. You don't need to sing along. The second song you're invited to sing along though, if you're willing and able. But during this two song break, we're going to ask that if you're willing and able, and if you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you've been baptized and placed your faith in him and you're surrendered to King Jesus, you're a part of his family, I'm going to ask that during these next two songs, you'll stand up and you'll make your way to one of these communion stations. And as you do, one of your brothers and sisters in Christ will place a piece of bread in your hands and place some juice in your hands and they will look you in the eyes and they will say, this is the body and blood of Christ given for you. And when you receive that, you may make your way back to your seat. And when your heart is ready, you can look outward, look side to side, look inward, look up, look back. And when your heart is ready, you can receive that piece of bread And remember what Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body. But I'm going to ask you not to receive the cup just yet, to to hang on to the cup for a few more minutes, and you'll receive your instructions later on for how we'll receive that together. I'm going to pray and then invite you to stand and come receive the body of Christ together. Our Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for this gift. We thank you for cup number one, that you have given us an easy yoke. We thank you for cup number two, that even now, as we prepare to receive your body, we get to taste our freedom. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may come receive the body and the blood of Christ. So on the night before he died, Jesus would have led his friends in receiving cup number one. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He would have led them in receiving cup number two. I will free you from being slaves. And then he broke bread and he said, this is my body. And then Jesus would have moved to the third cup. And every year at Passover, this third cup was called the cup of redemption. And we read what Jesus would have said as he passed that third cup. He said, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This cup number three and those words that That would have been a shock. If you were a good little Jewish boy, a good little Jewish girl who'd grown up having this dinnertime routine and hearing these same old words every year, those words right there would have been a lightning bolt to your covenantal memory. Jesus is, yes, reiterating this promise from God where God had promised long ago, I will redeem my people. But now Jesus is telling us for the very first time exactly how it's gonna happen. The promise every year at cup number three would have been this. A grandfather would have looked his grandchildren in the eyes and he would have reminded them that God promised, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. But now, 
Jesus is saying, yes, yes. God, my father made you that promise so long ago and now I, his son, am the one who is fulfilling it. I will be the one to redeem you with my outstretched arms on the cross. And God's mighty acts of judgment poured out on me instead of you. I am your redemption. I am the Passover lamb slain to take away the sin of the world. Cup number three, the cup of redemption. You know, I hold the, heard the story of uh, an old church lady named Margaret who is just, to be honest, quite a grumpy old lady. And, and one day she was sitting in church and a guy named Hank came in and Hank kind of had a reputation around town and he tried to slip in and just sit in the back row. But Margaret said, Hank, I know where you've been. I saw your truck parked outside the bar last night. Hank didn't say a word. Next week, Hank came in, tried to sneak in and sit in the back row, but Margaret said the same thing. Hank, I know where you've been. I saw your truck sitting outside the bar again last night. And, you know, Margaret went around and told all her little, her little friends. And every week, week after week, just went on like this. Hank came in, tried to, tried to sneak in the back, but Margaret said, Hank, I know where you've been. I saw your truck sitting outside the bar last night. And she'd go tell all her little buddies. And week after week, it went by. And Hank never said a word, but Hank was kind of inside getting a little fed up with it. So finally, one Saturday night, he just went and he parked his truck right in her driveway. And that did the trick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you've been, but God knows where you've been. And God knows where you parked your car. And in a room this size, it's just inevitable. There's a lot of secrets in here. In this room, we've got broken marriages and wayward children and grandchildren. We have unspoken addictions got fights that you're still in the middle of that you're waiting to finish this afternoon. We've got all kinds of anger and bitterness and sexual dysfunction and greed and prejudice and dishonesty and fear and shame and arrogance and legalism and taking God's grace and using it as a license for immorality. We've got countless flavors of immaturity and betrayal and rebellion sitting in this room right now, and none of it is hidden. God knows where you've been. He sees where you parked your truck. And man, if we think we're hiding from God, we're fools because he sees it all. He sees every part of us, every dark little corner of our hearts. He knows where we've been. And scripture says the wages of that sin is death. Make no mistake. But go back in your minds with me, if you would, to Egypt on that night when they got their shoes on and they made a meal in a hurry and they prepared to eat and they did what God had asked them to do. They, 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 they killed the lamb and they, 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 they painted the doorpost of their homes with the blood of that lamb. Imagine two men who did that. Imagine two different men, two different homes, each of them though with the blood of a lamb painted on their doorpost. And one man, he feels pretty good because I did what God asked me to do. I, I killed the lamb. I, I painted it on my doorpost and, and I'm confident God's just, he's gonna take care of me. He's got it. And because of his trust, that man, he slept great. He got his eight hours of beauty rest all through the night. He, he was feeling just fine. But imagine another man who, who did it and he, 
He painted the blood of his lamb on the doorpost of his home, but all the while he's wondering, I, I, I can't, what's going to happen? I'm not good enough. I'm sure I haven't done enough. What if I messed it up? Am I going to make it? And that man goes to bed that night and he doesn't sleep a wink. He's tossing and turning all night long because he's scared and he knows his sin and he knows how weak and how broken and shallow his faith is. And when the morning comes, which of those men is saved? Both of them, right? (laughs) Because we are not saved on the strength or the power or the amount of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. The power is not in your faith. The power is in the blood of the Lamb who took your death upon himself so that you could have his life. And listen... Luke is just a human. <laughs> and so when I look at you, yeah, I might, I might see your story. And I might still think of where you've been and what you've done. But if you are in Christ today, when God looks at you, he doesn't see all that anymore. He sees the blood of his son the perfect spotless Passover lamb so that today no matter where you have been and what you have done or how recently or how often you have done it Jesus says this gift is for you I will redeem you with my outstretched arms and so the band is going to sing another song here and I'm going to invite you to sing with us and all the while prepare your heart Because you and I today get to receive again the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. So sing this song with us, join us, and then we'll receive the cup together. I read a survey a while back that asked Americans about the words they most loved to hear. They asked a whole bunch of people, what what words do you love to hear most? And when the results came back in, some of it wasn't surprising. Phrase number one that Americans most like to hear is probably pretty obvious, three little words, I love you. I love you, that, that makes sense. And, and phrase number two that Americans most like to hear, the second place phrase was, I forgive you. That makes sense too, doesn't it? I love you, I forgive you. And, and coming in third place was just two words, supper's ready. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. And you know, if you're in Christ today, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've already heard those three phrases from your Father in heaven. That when God made you, he looked at you and he said, I love you, before you ever did anything to deserve it. And when he sent his son to save you, again, even though you didn't deserve it, he looked at you and he said, I forgive you. And someday, our hope is that he's gonna look down from heaven and he's gonna say, hey, supper's ready. And you and I are gonna get to gather with him. Because the beautiful thing about communion is it's not just the time to look outward. It's not just the time to look side to side. It's not just the time to look inward. It's not just the time to look upward. It's not just the time to look backwards. Communion is also a time for us to look forward. And Passover was for the Jews as well. Every year at Passover, the promise from Exodus chapter six for this fourth cup Well, promise number four is pretty special. 
Promise number four, the grandfather would look around the table at his family and he would say this. He would say, God reminds us this promise, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And as the Jews celebrated that every year, they'd say this phrase together. They'd say, this year we eat in the land of bondage, but next year we will eat in the land of promise. The Passover was a time to look forward to the day that God would redeem them and make all things new. And as best as I can tell, I, you know, I won't swear by this, but as best as I can tell, when you combine the four gospel accounts of what happened there at the Last Supper, I don't think Jesus drank the fourth cup. We read it earlier in Mark chapter 14, verse 25, where Jesus said, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think when you combine all four gospel accounts, I don't think Jesus actually drank this cup. I wonder if maybe, just maybe, he left that fourth cup sitting there, full, as a promise of his return, when he will split the clouds and he'll come riding back on a white war horse. And if I can paraphrase the book of Revelation, he'll say, supper's ready. And he'll invite us to the table with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says, communion is a time when we look forward to that day. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we gather, we're going to receive communion together, but we will not receive communion forever. We only do this till he comes. Because when he comes, Revelation chapter 19 says there's a better meal in store. Imagine your favorite food. Imagine your favorite holiday, your favorite family meal, and multiply it by a thousand because this is going to be the wedding banquet of the Lamb when you and I will get to be face-to-face -face with Jesus as the dinner guests of God himself. And if you're in Christ this morning, there's an RSVP at that table with your name on it. And when we get there, we're going to sit down and we'll eat together at the family meal we've all been waiting for, a feast beyond our wildest imaginations. And I don't know, but you got to guess that we'll laugh and we'll cry and we'll sing and we'll tell stories and we'll just sit and talk. And finally, all will be at rest because we're home with the people that we love and with the person that we love. And until then, every week, we will come to this table as a family, united through the blood of Christ. And in that moment, when he returns, this yet unfulfilled promise of the fourth cup will come true, where Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says that at that day, heaven will say, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And all God's people said. So we're going to send you today in the knowledge of that truth. Would you stand with me this morning? And wherever you go this week, whatever you do, whatever your week holds, go in the confidence and the peace of Christ, knowing that you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The peace of Christ be with you, church. We'll see you next week. 
Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.